All right then, well, we're here for a reason, so let's get to it. Uh, let's uh, open our Bibles, or however you happen to be following along, to the, the book of the prophet Zephaniah. We're going to look at the second chapter today uh, in its entirety uh, in a message that I have entitled, A Call to Repentance. And so with that, let's take and turn our hearts uh, to the Lord. And by the way, we should also uh, just, you know, I, I neglect to acknowledge our online family as well, so we should welcome them, right? Those who are joining us online, we, we're glad you're with us. <laughs> Woo! Let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, that you are a God of love and of mercy. And Father, we pray that today that you would speak in a way that um, challenges and changes us, Lord, individually and as a body. God, we want to have ears to hear you. And we thank you for the promise of your word that as we draw near to you, that you will draw near to us. And so we offer this time to you, Lord, and we pray, God, that you'd be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say? Amen. Amen. Guys, God is not a man that he should lie. Uh, If he says it, he will make it so. Uh, He doesn't know what it means to bluff. Uh, In all of his eternal existence, he has never uttered so much as a single, as the Bible says, great swelling word of emptiness. Uh, There is substance to all that he has spoken. However, we're also aware of the fact that the words that he speaks are at times what we call conditional. You know, if you do this, then I will do this. And if you do that, then I will do this. And God has spoken as we have began our journey throughout this particular book of the day of wrath, the day of trouble and distress that he would bring upon the whole world eventually, but more immediately, the day of devastation, desolation, and darkness that he would bring upon Judah specifically pertaining to where they were at currently, historically, in our in our text, you see, uh, due to the wickedness and the rebellion and the sin that they had settled into nationally. They had fallen into idolatry. You know, the placing of priority upon someone or something other than God in their lives. Many had become guilty, and I think this is a prevalent problem in our culture today, of spiritual adultery. You know, trying to go through the motions of worshiping God, yet still worshiping other gods, or engaging in the things of the flesh simultaneously. But then others still were guilty of, of, of uh, apostasy, just walking away from God completely. And the result was that they were in a dark place nationally. Many had settled into a state of complacency. Uh, they were uh, in this place of indifference spiritually. No real motivation or determination to grow in godliness or to render service to the Lord or obedience to his word. But rather they were pursuing ungodliness, as I mentioned, idolatry, giving way to gross immorality, and they felt like God really wasn't interested one way or another. But listen to me, God is interested in the things that are going on in your life. 
And he is interested. He does care about your pursuits and your priorities. And as his people, as you know, we, you and me, are to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, the short story is that judgment was on the way. A day of unmitigated distress and destruction. And it didn't matter who they were politically. It didn't matter if perhaps they were royalty, whether or not they were wealthy. None of that could save them. There was, however, one thing that perhaps could, perhaps would hold back the coming tsunami of the wrath of God. Any guesses? Repentance. Repentance. So let's take and turn our attention, beginning in the first verse of the second chapter of the prophet Zephaniah. We read, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord, uh, Lord's anger comes upon you. Now, listen, guys, we're going to, I just want to go ahead, I like to give fair warning or, or what we might call just a, a, a notice of courtesy because we're going to highlight a few things as we move throughout this chapter, but we want to spend most of our time today focusing on on these first few verses that speak to, that place an urgency upon repentance. And I like to share that so that you're not distracted here in 20 or 30 minutes, like this guy hasn't gotten past verse two and we're covering verse 15, you know, 15 verses, because I know how that can be. And so I'm just saying, hey, don't, don't panic. Uh, we're, we're gonna make it, but we're gonna spend the lion's share of our time right here. Now, let's not lose sight of the fact that the prophet has just emphasized coming out of chapter one into chapter two for them this insatiable, unstoppable nature of God's wrath. That their silver, their gold won't deliver them. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're wealthy. doesn't matter the position they have politically. doesn't matter if they're royalty. The whole land shall be devoured by the fire of God's jealousy. And perhaps we should just stop to remember. We should maybe even reflect on that fact that our God is a jealous God. He told them, guys, even hundreds of years prior to this, when they were making their way to the promised land, he said, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall, notice, destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, notice, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. What that means is that God wants you, listen to me, not half-heartedly, not even mostly, but he, he wants you completely, right? He wants all of you in totality. He doesn't want to share you with a competing passion or another God, you see, that lends itself to idolatry. Now, sometimes we hear the word jealous and we... we 
perceive it with negative connotations. And that's because applied to you and me, there would be negative connotations. But God isn't like you or me. His attributes aren't tainted or spoiled by sin. God is not jealous of you uh, or me, but he is jealous for you. And he would shield you from those things which would harm or invite destruction upon you. But Zephaniah had said that God would make, back in the the last verse of the first chapter, he said that God would make quick work. The words he used were speedy riddance uh, of uh, all those who dwell in the land. And then as he opens up what's become chapter two for you and me, he says, gather yourselves together. He says, yes, gather together, O undesirable, or more literally, O shameless nation. Now let's remember, you guys, that Zephaniah is writing um, primarily to a people of agriculture. So when he says, gather yourselves together, it's painting a familiar picture for them in their minds of the stooping down, the getting low, to gather together Oh, it could be straw or stubble or whatever the case may be. And so though there is a a, a room for a calling together in the sense of a national assembly, which is exactly, by the way, what God called for through the prophet Joel. He, He said, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. However, here, at the expense of perhaps splitting hairs, the picture it seems more accurately to be is an appeal for a a stooping down, a a, a nationwide humility. And truth be told, ultimately, that's the case. Uh, They appeal in both cases, whether they gather collectively or it's the position they take individually throughout the nation, the exhortation is that they would humble themselves in mourning and repentance before God. Guys, the feeling that begins to surface here in our text is the same that rings true through another popular portion of Scripture that we find cited and quoted so often. And it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And the fact that that uh, Zephaniah repeats the command twice only serves to stress the urgency of the appeal. The time has come for them to be taken low. Now, humility, you see, is the necessity. And, and, And should they refuse to humble themselves in the dust before the holiness of God... Well, they will be beaten into the dust by the judgment of God. Are you following me? By the way, the same is true for you and me. I mean, we will all be humbled before the Lord. The Bible says in no uncertain terms, there's no ambiguity, there is no uncertainty that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, How that happens, however, is completely up to us. We can humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, 
or we can be humbled by the Lord. Either way, humility is in order before the Lord. Are you with me? Okay. The unspoken truth that's surfacing here is the fact that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The question is, do you want to be on the side that God resists? And by the way, the word resist doesn't just mean like, you know, a tug of war, one resisting the other, or even a push-pull kind of a, a position. It means opposes or even ranges in battle against. God ranges in battle against the proud, right? He opposes the proud. And you can be on that side that he opposes, that he battles against, or the side to which he extends grace. As for me, I want to be found in the grace of God, not found fighting against or in opposition toward God. That's, that's a fight that you and I, we can never win, right? He calls them an undesirable nation, more literally, a nation not ashamed, what does it mean, nation not ashamed? Well, it shames me to even say it, but just look around at our nation, and the picture becomes perfectly clear. There's no blushing. There's no embarrassment over sin. Instead, we, we boast in we brag on, we publicize the things that we should be embarrassed about and ashamed of. Sin has this way of, it, it, it's hardened us to any kind of sensitivity over shameful acts. Sin is celebrated, it's glamorized, it's publicized, it's gloated over, you see. In brief, a shameless nation is a nation with a hard heart. No longer saddened, no longer sorry over sin, but rather sin is openly commended. It's applauded. Jeremiah, who wrote to this same generation to which Zephaniah wrote, made it clear when he said, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time I punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Listen, when we sin, there are two things that work together to help us realize that we have erred exceedingly and we need to, to turn around. That's what it means to repent, right? It's this, it's this kind of this ancient Bible word, so they, oh, repent. You know, you see the man, the old man with the bony finger pointing it out, telling everybody to repent. You know, you kind of think of that word. But the word repent simply means to turn around. You're going one direction. It's not a good direction. Let's turn around, okay? And there are two things that work together to uh, help us realize the need to turn around, and they are, number one, our conscience, and number two, the work of the Holy Spirit. And they will work together to bring that sense of conviction, that sense of uh, godly sorrow. Now listen, godly sorrow is not bad for you, it's good for you. 
Uh, Paul the Apostle said, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Guys, I don't know about you, I suspect I do, but I have never regretted being led to repentance. My regret always revolves around the sin that I've harbored in my heart or how long it takes me to turn around. But a refusal to respond to that conviction builds up a tolerance. It gets easier and easier to ignore. The Bible speaks of it in terms of a searing of our conscience or developing a a callous uh, around our heart. Guys, it's not good to try and numb the pain associated with conviction over sin, okay? You might write it down just so you can read it later. It's Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 15. We can be, well, the word is hardened through what the Bible calls the deceitfulness of sin. And so that's why the urgency is upon the appeal when you hear his voice, when that conviction comes calling, don't harden your heart, don't reject it, but rather accept it. Give God his way in your heart and in your life, right? And, and, and make sure, here's another big deal, make sure you surround yourself with people who will encourage you to do what's right. Rather than just saying, oh man, you're making too big of a deal about that. Oh man, it's not, you listen, it's not, you know, whatever the case may be, or help justify you, or enable you, or whatever the case may be, but rather they challenge you to do the right thing. They say, hey man, that ain't, that ain't right. Man, what are you doing? All right? But in calling Judah to repent, Zephaniah is holding out some hope of escape from the righteous wrath of God. But we need to notice that time was at a premium. Verse 2 tells us that repentance needed to happen, notice, before the decree is issued, meaning before the gavel falls. Now again, this only underscores the urgency because the only way to turn a nation to God is to turn the individuals who make up that nation to God, right? One by one. And so this is why every week we're encouraging you to make the appeal, to grab the burden, to catch the vision, come and see, inviting people to hear the gospel. Don't just be content with the fact that you know the Lord because there are people out there who are perishing. And we, you know, the the urgency, guys, the idea here is turn to God and be instrumental in, in encouraging others to turn to God before it's too late. Okay, in the book of Genesis, God said, my spirit shall not strive with man. Now, we've already seen that God will resist, right, or oppose man who is, who is prideful or, or set in his uh, wickedness, right? My spirit shall not always strive with man forever. In other words, what that means is that, that, listen, God will grapple with you. We see the picture, right, in the book of Genesis when the angel of the Lord, when the Lord was, was wrestling with Jacob. 
God will grapple with us. He will strive with us in order that he might lead us to repentance. But he will not strive or wrestle or plead or contend with us forever. There comes a time, and my suspicion is that it varies with each individual as God alone knows and searches the heart, right? But there comes a time and though, and there's global application as well. We know that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, that there will be a time where he will cease striving with man and, and the hammer will fall. But even on an individual basis, there is a, you know, look, we refuse and refuse and refuse to repent. God will eventually, ultimately, you see, he will honor the defiance of our decision and he will render us the just reward of our rebellion. And again, that's why it's so important that we look to turn from our sin when God convicts us of it initially because he's not just going to continue to contend with us forever. And every day that we don't turn from our sin, that we don't look to get right with God or render obedience to God is a day that passes, again, verse two, like chaff. In other words, what good was it? And what is chaff? Well, it's that worthless part of the stalk, right? That worthless part of the husk uh, that held the, the wheat kernel. You know, they had harvest the wheat. We're, we're in that context, right, of the gathering of the straw. He's painting this picture. He's talking about chaff and all. And they would gather the wheat, and then they would have the threshing floor, and they would thrash it or thresh it. They would, they would beat it uh, upon the floor, or perhaps they would have an ox. You've seen the picture of the ox walking around the circle and the, that deal in the middle, and they're yoked to it, and they're treading on the grain, right? We have the scripture, don't muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And there they are, and they're busting it up so that it separates the wheat from the chaff. And then it would go through what was called a winnowing process, okay? Whereby they would scoop it all up together and they would throw it in the air. And then that which had substance, the, the kernels of wheat would fall to the, to the ground, but the, the worthless chaff would just be blown off the threshing floor uh, by the wind. Any, you know, and, and, and so that's how the wheat and the chaff would be separated. The good separated from the bad. And Zephaniah is saying that if we're not leading lives of active repentance, if we're neglecting getting right and staying right with God, then our day is essentially worthless, okay? It, it passes like chaff. Now, we're not saying you don't do good things, for, you know, but the idea is, is as it pertains to the eternal perspective, right? If we're not using our day get right with God, to stay right with God, to render obedience to God, then really, what's, it's just, it's passing like chaff. And, and once the Lord begins to move in judgment, it's too late. You can't be like, oh, okay, I'll get right now, you see. It doesn't work like that. We've let the day pass like chaff. We let the day pass like chaff. We keep doing our own thing, pursuing our own heart, thinking, oh, there's plenty of time, whatever the case may be. And when the, and when the judgment falls, guys, he's not gonna turn back the tide. The floodgates will be open wide and the full force of his judgment is felt 
But it's so easy to do, isn't it? To let the days pass like chaff. It's one of Satan's most powerful lies, you guys. You know, not that there's no God. That's, I mean, some people buy into that, but that's not the most powerful lie. Uh, you know, not that there's no truth. Well, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. Relativism, that's a, that's, a, that's a good lie that he employs. It's not the most powerful lie. You know, that there's no heaven, there's no uh, hell, or whatever the case may be. No, no, no. The most powerful lie is that there's what? There's no hurry. Okay? But here's the truth. We're we're never guaranteed another day. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. That's that's what Satan wants you to buy into. It's cool if he gets you with, uh, I mean, in his mind, it's cool if he gets you with the there's no God, there's no truth, there's no heaven, there's no hell, but ultimately you can throw all those things aside as long as you're buying into this when there's no hurry. You got time, right? Look at verse three. He says, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Uh, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Look, if you're not right with God, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you have no place to hide when God pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. Listen to me, pardon, forgiveness is found in Jesus alone. Like the old hymn, right? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's the, that's, you see now, that's where that comes from. There back when Moses was hid in the, in the cleft of the rock, because if he saw God, he, he would die. Jesus is our hiding place, our, our refuge. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. There's that call for the repentance, the return. Come back, you see. He says, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Guys, this goes back to where, you know, what we were talking about last week. We should never sit and think that the word applies maybe to someone else. Wow, I wish so-and-so were really, you know, listening to this, or if only that person were here, that would be really good for them, or whatever the case may be. Hey, God's speaking to me, you see. He's talking to you. Again, if my people, who were called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. Think about that. God is here appealing to his remnant, the meek, the humble, those who've upheld his justice, those who've 
walked in his ways. You know, what, what's happening here is things are getting ready to get bad. And so he appeals to the remnant. Hold the line. Stay true. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't throw in the towel. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility, both individually, but then also in the gathering collectively, in the context of worship, you see. The word seek implies wholehearted commitment to the effort, persistence in the pursuit. Guys, think this through. Family, how persistent are you? This is something that only you know between you and the Lord. I'm throwing it out there for you to think through. Consider what I say. How persistent are you in your pursuit of the Lord? Think about that. In your personal pursuit of righteousness, you know, uh, rendering willful obedience to the word of God, not out of legalism, but out of your love for God. Your righteousness implies rightness, doing right by others. Oh, ooh, that's a, that's a word in due season, isn't it? Especially in this, you know, the way we treat others, the way we speak to others in, in this season, uh, the divisive days in which we live. Come on, man, you guys know what I'm talking about. You don't have to go too far on your Facebook thread to find some sort of ridiculousness in how we speak to people, how we act or respond to people. Guys, it speaks volumes. And meekness. Meekness isn't weakness. It it is a crucifying of the flesh. It is a casting away of of pride and self-righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit, self-control. It is is strength under control, perfectly exhibited in the life of our Lord. And he says, it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Jesus, in talking of the judgment that would come upon the whole world, said, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Think about that. When's the last time you prayed, oh God, help me to understand what it means to lead a life that's worthy to escape all these things that I might stand before you. God, I want my life to be pleasing to you, you see. Jesus said, man, you need to pray like that all the time. God is able to deliver the righteous and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, but he knows those who are his and those who are simply going through the motions with no real heart for him. He he knows all that. And guys, we shouldn't anticipate God delivering us from the wrath to come if we're not set apart to him, if we're not living a life that seeks after him or that really desires to honor him from the heart. And of course, you know, we, can, we talk about this, and as for God's plans for Israel in the future, he's talking about uh, seek righteousness, humility. It may be that you will be hidden Uh, we know that he will deliver a remnant during the great tribulation. The Bible teaches that when the Antichrist begins to persecute the Jews, there will be those millions, I suspect, that will flee, and God will protect and preserve them. We know that the rock city Petra in Jordan will be one of the places they find refuge. 
In the book of Isaiah, we read, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Remember last week we talked about the near-far fulfillment that's so often found in so many prophecies. This is one of them. We know that God preserved a remnant during the day of devastation that Babylon uh, brought, but that was a foreshadowing of the fulfillment that will take place during the great tribulation just prior to the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. But family, you know, just think this through and take it home with you. Are you seeking the Lord? Are you seeking righteousness? Seeking humility? And if you would say to me, yeah, uh, that, that's, yeah, then my next question, and that's great. My next question would be, how are those things then evident in your life? Okay? Okay. Now, God is dealing with Judah directly. But now we shift gears. Guys, we're going to hammer down a little bit, okay? Pick up the pace. God is not just a local deity, He is a God of all the earth, and every nation will answer to him. He's the redeemer of mankind. He's the judge of all the earth. Here's the question. If judgment begins in the house of God, then what will become, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, God begins to address the nations that surround Israel, that surround Judah, those nations that have influenced them in ungodly ways or have troubled them or mocked them or sought to do damage to or destroy them. Look at verse 4. He says, For Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon desolate, and they shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, in other words, when they're unsuspecting, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites, the word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, so there shall be no inhabitation. The seacoast shall be pastures with shelters for the shepherds and folds for the flock. The coast it shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah, and they shall feed their flocks there. In the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will intervene for them, notice, and return their captives. So, first off, the Lord through Zephaniah looks to the west, the notorious nation of the Philistines. You, you, all you got to do is read, you know what, 1st, 2nd Samuel, uh, the kings, you realize the, the uh, thorn in the flesh that the Philistines were uh, to them, and God says, I'm going to destroy you. Ultimately, where you live will be so decimated, it will become pastures for the Bedouins of my people. Uh, The house of Judah will feed their flocks there, because though I'm dealing with Judah now, I will return their captives. In other words, like we talked in Habakkuk, even in wrath, God will remember mercy. Now in verse 8, he says, I have heard the reproach of Moab. And the insults of the people of Ammon with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits. 
and a perpetual desolation. Therefore, the residue, or pardon me, the the residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. Remember what God said when he made the covenant with Abraham? He said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. God is holding true to that, you see. The Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nation. So from the west, now he looks to the east uh, against Moab and Ammon, and God brings up their arrogant threats. God hates pride. We understand this, right? Pride goes before destruction. God says, I have heard the reproach of Moab, the insults of Ammon, and he says, a perpetual desolation is in store for you. You will be like Sodom and Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits. Now, the comparison to Sodom and Gomorrah is interesting because Moab and Ammon, these boys, were the offspring of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters after being delivered out of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Uh, And so uh, even as Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, he's saying, man, the same fate's coming your way. Verse 11, he says, the Lord will be awesome to them, uh, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. So guys, God is on high. Now, one of the ways that he will glorify himself is among, among the nations is to bring low. God is on high. He will bring low. It will become evident that there are none like him. There are none beside him. He will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth uh, to demonstrate to the people uh, of the nations that their gods are, are, are nothing. And in vain, they have worshiped the creature rather than the creator, anything or anyone other than the true and living God. It says, people shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. So again, we've, we've done this, what's called prophetic telescoping, right? From here, whoom, he looks forward all the way to the millennial kingdom of Christ. When the, king, when, the, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He says, all the nations will worship me, you see. Now in verse 12, he says, you Ethiopians, you shall be slain by my sword. So he's looked west, he's looked east. Now judgment is pronounced on the south. Next up, the north. Verse 13, and he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation, as dry as the wilderness. The herds shall lie down in her midst. Every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge among the capitals of her pillars. You know, those, uh, the peaks, the, the flat things up there, they're called capitals. Uh, and their voice Uh, shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none besides me. How she has become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down, 
Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Just disdain. By the way, I don't know where Karen is, but you can make your way up uh, for closing as well. But Assyria. Uh, Now, he narrows in on the pride of Nineveh. You've heard of Nineveh, right? The whole Jonah situation that took place a couple hundred, few hundred years prior to this point. And he says Nineveh will be devastated, depopulated, and destroyed. Brought to ruin. Which it was, by the way, at the hand of the Babylonians in 612 B.C. Again, you guys, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What's the message here? All the nations, right? Every nation. He's pointing north, south, east, west. God will hold mankind accountable for their sins. Judgment is coming. But grace is available. Don't harden your heart. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. You can be, the word is, hidden, find safety, be saved, you see, in the day of judgment. Don't harden your heart. I'll leave you with the words written in Romans chapter 10. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him shall not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all, is rich to all who call upon him for whoever. Ladies and gentlemen, that word means whoever. I could say you ever, right? It's all of us. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. God, may we consider your word to us today. And may we find it in our hearts to be a people of repentance. Not playing games, not thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe one day, but that we would turn from our sin, that we would seek after you, that we would seek righteousness, seek humility, calling upon your name that you might heal our hearts, heal our land. We thank you for your love. And may our lives bring glory to your name. Listen, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, today, that means right here, right now, if you will hear his voice, Don't harden your heart. Respond to the call of God to turn from your sin, to surrender, to submit your life to Him, and you'll be saved. Listen, you're not saved by jumping through hoops, by showing up for a church service, saying a little prayer, but by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ 
God saves you by grace through faith. And if he's drawing you, today's the day. Cry out to him. Don't delay. Don't harden your heart. I don't know. Maybe everybody here does know Jesus. Maybe everybody here uh, has given their life to Jesus, but maybe not. Maybe you're in that place where you've been to church maybe several times. Maybe you thought you considered yourself a fairly religious person. But this concept of truly having a relationship with God is something that kind of evades you. That can change. You can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's what's happening in your heart, I'd love to pray for you. And so if God is speaking to you, if he's dealing with you, I'm I'm just going to ask you that you just show me who you are so I can pray for you. I just ask you to raise your hand and and if, and, and if I see your hand, I'll, I'll say it, and then you can put it back down if you want. But I just want to give you a moment right here, right now, to say, you know what? Pray for me. That would be my honor. Is that you? Don't miss your moment. If God's speaking to you, now's the time. Anyone I can pray for? Well, then as a family, we want to just kind of sit here for just a minute, you guys, just a quick minute. And maybe there's been some illumination or something that God's brought to your attention for consideration. I want you to think about how that's going to translate into application from this day forward. We've talked about seeking the Lord. Are you seeking humility? Are you seeking righteousness? And what's that look like in your life? Think about what's going to change in your life today as you draw near to Him and you give way to Him. Maybe He's striving with you. He's grappling with you. Why fight? Why fight it? Lord, I just pray that as you lift one thing, maybe a couple of things to the forefront of our hearts and minds, that we're eager to lay them at your feet, to have a change of mind, a change of heart, a change in our lives, that you'd fill us fresh with the person and the power of your spirit. God, that we would be stirred out of maybe that place of indifference or complacency or whatever the case may be, we would have the urgency of infecting others with the gospel, the opportunity to know you, to be saved by you, that come and see mentality. In Jesus' name. Amen.